family, acting on behalf of God to release the Israelites from the oppression of Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And so, in Exodus 14, we have uh, one of the most powerful redemption acts in all of history, the crossing of the Red Sea, and afterwards come the wilderness uh, wanderings. Imagine there's a map and there's a wilderness one, and it's a great map, right? So they're wandering around for 40 years, and that whole first generation that came out of the uh, Egyptian land, that first generation, it was about 600,000 men. And so if you do the math and you add the wives and the children, about 2 million Israelites walking around the desert peninsula, And then we see that because of their complaining and their grumbling and their disobedience, that God makes them wander for 40 years, and even uh, further, that whole generation dies off in the wilderness. And so after the 40 years, they continue on their path, and now they're finally at the borders of the promised land, the land that God had promised to Abraham and he had promised to the Israelites to, to enter and to take hold of this great Canaan land. So after the 40 years of going all around of, uh, of the wilderness, you can see that little loop, finally getting to the star right before they enter, they're finally at the border. And that border now is the Jordan River. That's the border into the promised land. Now, hearing the words 40 years, it doesn't sound too bad, especially because it seems so far uh, long ago, and it's not happening to us. But we have to think about just how long that was. We have to realize that it shouldn't take 40 years to get from Egypt to Canaan. Even if you're very generous with their traveling time, with caravans and with all the people back then, at most it would take a few weeks by foot to get from Egypt to Canaan. But it took them 40 years. And so you can just imagine the anticipation, the amount of traveling that they did, and they're finally here, they're finally at the Jordan River getting ready to cross into the promised land. They've gone through a lot. They've encountered many losses. The whole first generation, they perished in the wilderness. They fought many battles. They haven't been living in homes. They were living in tents across the Sinai Desert in the wilderness. We're talking about two million people now. The new generation that God had raised up. And now they're ready to enter this Canaan promised land. And right before they do, God has another request, a command, to take another step of faith. It's not going to just be given to them, but he wants them to take these steps of faith, and he speaks, and he speaks because he wants to show his power. He wants to show his power only after the Israelites take this step of faith that really shows their allegiance and their trust in Yahweh, their God. That step is literally a step of faith, to take that step into the Jordan River and to walk across the waters that are coming downstream, that they would walk over this dry land. And now you and I know, even though God had done all of these things, and perhaps even for you, you can remember how God has just provided for you and been faithful in your life. When the time comes to make that step of faith, it's actually harder than you think. 
You can always look back and say, yes, God came through and, and I remember how he gave me this and provided me uh, with that. But then when the time comes, many times we can doubt, we can hesitate, we can even be paralyzed. And we can see that's the same situation here. And that's what we're going to look at. We're going to see, number one, that God is all about us taking steps of faith. That's, he's all about that. And then number two and number three, we're going to see why he does that. And three, how he helps us to take those steps of faith. So with that in mind, let's pray, ask him for his help as we study this passage. Heavenly Father, we do pray for your Holy Spirit. We know that these aren't just words. These are the very words of life. We pray that your words will come alive into our hearts. May it burn in our hearts as we see how these words point to Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, our Redeemer. As a result, may the people in this room worship you with wholehearted devotions and also as a result may you use us to bring others into worship with you in christ's name amen so first we're going to see that god he's all about us taking steps of faith even if he has shown us his promises and his provision in the past especially when we're encountering something difficult in front of us i want to share with you Earlier in my 20s, I had the opportunity uh, to live in a handful of different places, uh, not in America. And when I would be in these places living by myself, I would take that opportunity to visit a lot of these sites, try a lot of these new foods. And now the joy that I have today is, is I can bring someone along with me and share with them, show them what I had experienced when I was single, when I was lonely, when I was by myself, right? And I would do that with short-term mission trips, for example. I would show them, this is where I ate beef noodles every day. Now you suffer with me. (laughs) I would do that more recently now with Joanna. This is the route that I took every day waiting for you to come and join me or something like that. Now what happens during these times is when I show them and when I take them down these paths, a lot of the times they say things like, are you sure this is the right way? You sure this is how we get there? You seem a little lost. We've been walking a lot. Perhaps we should ask someone. And when I hear that, I go, wife, when have I ever failed you in my directions? Recount. Have I ever failed you? Now, she would give me a look. But before she says anything, I would bring up Italy. I would bring uh, 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 Philippines, Korea. I have never failed you. Look at that and see and see how I am capable of taking you to this restaurant. And I'll say something like that. She would roll her eyes or something like that. (laughs) But what I'm trying to say is, if you recount, if you look at how I had been faithful in the past, that should enable you to place your trust in me today. It gets a lot harder when it's hot or when she's hungry. All that to show, even with all of that past record, even with all of the past times that I've shown her places, When it comes down to when you're facing something, it's hard to trust again because you look at the situation. You look at how hungry you are. So I don't want us to think, well, the Israelites, they've seen so many great things, the Red Sea, the manna, all of these great conquests. So it should be easy for them to cross the Jordan River. I don't want us to go into the mistake of thinking it should be easy for them. Just walk over. At this point, that doesn't seem that hard. And I don't want us to make that assumption because When the time comes, when it comes down to when you see something that's very difficult, very formidable in front of you, fear does come. Doubts do come. Happens in our lives. 
you know, even situations. Situations where we can look back and say, wow, God has, he really came through that time. For example, financially. I know every person, every family most likely has gone through a time when it was very difficult financially. But now today, you can look back at that season, and now you can say, wow, I was able to get through that season. God really provided just enough. I always had something to eat. I always had a roof over my head. And you can look back to see how God had provided for you. But then say you recently hear that at your company, people are being laid off. Say that you have a wave of these unexpected expenses coming your way, a hospital bill. And then you look at your bank account. Yes, you can look in the past and you can look to see how God had provided, but then you have to admit and be honest, you're still afraid. Is God going to provide again? Am I going to be okay this time? See, in those moments, it can be very different. But it's in those moments God calls you to step out in faith, to trust Him. He will provide everything that you need. You can trust in His provision, His love, and His care. Say, relationally, you can doubt whether or not it's worth showing that love, that patience, that grace to that person that is so difficult to love. And you know intellectually, rationally, even theologically, that God wants us to extend grace and love to those around us, especially in light of the fact that Jesus first loved us. And we know that. And we've seen just how, how much good can come out of that for our hearts and our souls. But yet when the time comes for us to be patient, it's hard. When the time comes for us to extend love, it's hard. On a more serious note, you can be deathly afraid of letting go of an addiction. Perhaps you can't even admit something is an addiction, which is a telltale sign that it's having a pretty strong hold on your life. That's a common response to refuse just how serious something can be and how much of an effect something has on you. But then you see God challenging you to take that step of faith, to let go of that idol, to let go of that addiction so that you can hold on to something far greater. You can be afraid to let go because you're not sure if that God is going to be that much greater. And when the time comes, it's so hard to say no to those things, right? We know. We've seen. We've read. We've heard. God is far greater. God will provide. God loves us. And perhaps we can take a few seconds and consider what are some of the things you're afraid to let go of, not trusting in God's provision. And I have a lot of things in my life. And to help think that maybe you can answer this, fill in the blank. Without blank, I can't be happy. What is it for you? Without blank, I cannot be happy. And if you filled in that blank with anything else but God, that's what we call an idol, and we have to be honest and admit we're afraid to let that go because we don't really know if God is going to be worth it. Now, recently, there was an article, and the writer said this, a good litmus test of whether something is idolatrous is whether you are willing or able to abstain from it. Guess what the article was about? Netflix. You know, there's a lot of places in our lives where God calls us to take that step of faith, financially, spiritually, relationally. It can be in the area of your spiritual growth. Perhaps to prioritize relationships in this church. 
or to make prayer a non-negotiable practice in your life. And you can be afraid to take that step of faith and to commit and say, okay, I'm going to do this. Why? Because you're afraid that you're going to fail again. You're afraid that if I actually do this, that God's going to really make my life better. And we can be afraid to take that step. You can be afraid of a lot of things. Now, as I mentioned earlier, in your mind, there might be no reason to doubt or to be afraid intellectually, theologically, experientially. And that's the same with the Israelites. They have no reason to doubt that God's going to come through again, especially in light of what he had done for them in Egypt with the splitting of the Red Sea. It's a lot greater than the Jordan River. It's a sea, right? Not a river. Especially in light of the fact that God had commanded them directly through Joshua I'm going to take you safely across the Jordan River, yet it can be daunting. And there's a couple of reasons why it can be daunting here. The first, even though it calls you to take a step of faith, you can see what's right in front of it, and it is scary. Danger. And you can see the potential for things to go wrong. Being at the banks of the Jordan River, the Israelites certainly saw the potential for things to go wrong. We read in our passage that the Jordan River during this time, it was when the waters were at uh, the, uh, the fullest. It was the most fierce during this time. The banks were overflowing, coming down from the mountains and these rapid streams down into the Sea of Arabah. It was springtime, and that's when the river was in its flooding stages. And so it's wider than its normal width. It's about 90 to 100 feet wide, where in other times it's only three feet deep. Now it's about 10 feet deep obviously taller than an average man. There was a drop of nine feet every 40 miles coming from the north to the south. And you can tell from that information that the currents are going to be coming pretty strongly down. So it was a raging torrent about a mile wide covering a mass of tangled bush and jungle growth, a commentator writes. And so with that in plain sight, with that in front of them, God commands them to walk across this river. Let's look a little closely. Go a few verses back. Chapter 3, verse 14. Chapter 3, verse 14. When the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the ark of the covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the ark were dipped in the brink of the water, now, do you see, the Jordan overflows all its banks through the time of harvest. The waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap far away. Stop there. Perhaps here you can think, well, you know, if the Israelites simply remember what God did at the Red Sea and you know, all that he had done for them, it's easy for them to have the courage to walk across, right? But we can't say those kinds of things because they also can struggle with taking that step of faith and obedience. And we can say the same things to ourselves. You know, God took care of you last time. Why are you so afraid now? Don't you love God? Don't you trust him? And you know, it's never that black and white. Yes, you do love him. Yes, you do trust him. Yes, you do believe he's the provider and the redeemer and, and, and the Lord of our lives. But when the time comes for to take that step, we can be just as afraid. Why? Because we see the raging waters in front of us. We see the uncertainty. We see something dangerous in front of us. And that can cloud how God had come through for us in the past. You can say, well, it's the same thing, right? Red Sea, Jordan River, well, it's a little different. Because if you think back, the way that God parted the Red Sea, he told Moses to take his staff 
and that taking his staff to put his hand above the waters, and as he did so, the waters would split, and they would visibly see the dry land, and they could walk across it. What does God command them to do now? Step in the waters. (laughs) The waters are coming down pretty strongly. Take some steps in there. And when you're in there, I promise that I'm going to stop the water from coming down all the way up north in this city called Adam. Do you see, it's a little different this time. It's not as if you can see dry land and you just walk across it. He wants you to actually take that step first as you feel the water, as you feel its force coming upon you. And you can see it's not the same. So you can't say, well, they walked across the Red Sea. They can do it easily now. No, it's different. Just like how in your life, it can be different every single time. Not only do you see the danger in front of you, but to take that step of faith for the Israelite, it means also that life isn't going to be easy from now on. It's not finished. Why? Because as soon as they cross the Jordan River, there's a lot to come. Yes, they are in the promised land, but they haven't fully acquired it yet. Why? Because there are many nations, many cities that still believe that the promised land is theirs. So what do they have to do as soon as they cross? They have to fight battles. They have to take more steps, more obedience uh, uh, steps as they follow God's command. So you can just imagine just how tired they must be. Two million Israelites, as soon as they walk across, we're going to see in chapter 4, verse 13, you can see it's the first reference of the city of Jericho. Do you know the story of Jericho? It's one of the first cities that they had to conquer and to fight in this long battle. So you can't assume that all two million Israelites were gung-ho and excited to jump into this river, getting ready for phase two of acquiring the land. Jericho was six miles away. They could see it. They knew that it was going to be more struggle, more effort, more time. And imagine how they felt. They fought in more battles, many battles even getting to this point. They're famished. They've been without a home for more than a generation, living and sleeping in tents across the desert. And then in light of that, God still calls them to take the step of faith into the land where they're going to have to take even bigger steps of faith, fighting their enemies and exhibiting more signs of obedience. And I'm sure they were tired. Can you imagine the Jewish mother with a newborn saying, God, I'm just trying to get through the day. I'm going to have to carry this baby and walk into this river. Or the Israelite soldier who always had been donning his armor day in, day out, fending off wild animals and marauding soldiers. And he must be thinking, asking God, God, how much more of this do I have to take? Have you said these kinds of things lately? Or at least thought them? I'm just tired. God, how much more of this is going to go on? And then the response that the Israelites hear from God is, go forward, take steps of faith into the river. I will show you my power. And in our passage, the Israelites are in a position where they're called to make such a decision and step out. And as they do, we're going to see how the rest of the passage explains how they were able to. The second and third point is about this. Why God calls them to take this step of faith. So we can see in the face of danger and opposition, in the face of being just so exhausted and weary, God doesn't simply give the command, but he also provides a way for us to be able to do it. 
Augustine once said, Lord, command what you will and give what you command. Not only does he provide the command, he provides the resources along with the command, and we're going to see that here. And the two things that we see, first, God gives them a purpose, which is very powerful. He gives them a purpose for calling on the Israelites to take this step of faith, and it unfolds all throughout the narrative. You see, the call was not only for them to take a step into the waters, but to take 12 men, each man from each tribe, to carry these large stones on their shoulders. And now when the priests, when they would walk into the rivers, they're holding the Ark of the Covenant, and as they're standing there in the waters, the water's going to stop, and they're to take the stones, put it by the priest's feet. And after the Israelites, all two million of them, walk across, take those stones, establish them on Gilgal, and make a memorial site over there. See, ever since the beginning of God's call for them to take this step of faith, he was also providing them a purpose. And that's intentional because in the face of something like the Jordan, opposition, suffering, hardship, purpose, I think purpose is one of the most powerful things that God can give us. And it's one of the most powerful things that human beings have capacity for because for almost everything in life, if you can provide the purpose, you'll find that you can endure a lot more than you think. You'll find that if you can provide a purpose, you can accomplish a lot more than you set out to do. Let me ask you, every time you suffer, what's the first question that comes in your mind? Why? Why is this happening? We want to find purpose because if that purpose is given, you can justify what you're going through, right? God, if there is a purpose here, I can gladly walk through the rivers. But unless I know that purpose, it's hard. The athlete who undergoes rigorous training and strict diets can do such things. Why? Because he has the purpose of winning the Olympic medal. The student who undergoes this painfully long system of education called college Why and how can they do that? Because they have a purpose. Afterwards, they can get a job and have a, uh, be provided for. Purpose is powerful, and God provides that. He tells the Israelites, you stepping forward in steps of faith, taking hold of the land that I promised you, starting with that step, all the world will know and worship the true and living God. Look at verse 24. It's the final verse of this chapter. And you can see how everything before points forward and leads to this. Do you see those words, so that, right? Every time you see words like that in Scripture, it means something. That's the purpose. All of these things, taking the step, going to the waters, carrying the ark, God says, so that you can see how everything leads to this purpose, so that all the peoples, all the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. And when they set up these memorial stones, it goes to show that they, in faith, they're establishing it, having faith, believing that they're already going to have this land. Technically, they don't have it yet, right? But they're setting up these stones because they, in faith, are trusting that this land is going to be theirs. It's kind of reversing the order here, right? First, you have to conquer. First, you have to actually get the land, and then you set up the stones, but not with the Israelites. And by establishing the stones, all the children... And the generations after them, when they come across them, they're going to ask, what do these stones mean? And then they're going to explain God's mighty arm. 
that saved them from Egypt, that carried them through the wilderness and carried them up over the Jordan River into the land that they currently are residing in. And do you see God's name is going to be known throughout the generations after them because of this event. That's the purpose. And not only the people that come after them, the people around them, the surrounding nations, the peoples, they will come to know that God is mighty, that he is the true and living God. Do you see the purpose of crossing the river? So that peoples, your children, the people around you can see, wow, God provided for that church. God provided for that brother. God provided for that sister. Wow, that is a kind of God that I don't mind worshiping. Do you see how it leads to that? He gives them purpose. And the way that God sets up these memorial stones, you know, a lot of times in Scripture, God does call us to remember the past. And as a result of that, we are to praise Him. And we're all about that. In the Psalms especially, for example, Psalm 105, give thanks to the Lord, call upon His name, make His known his deeds among the peoples. Remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles. But the reason for the memorial stones in our passage is not only tied to the result of praise. That's very well a part of it, but that's not just it. But it's also for the purposes of others coming to see just how great of a God they have, future generations and the people around them. So the past is for the future. Do you get that? Remembering the past is to propel you, is to give you hope and motivation for the future. It's not simply just to remember, oh, wow, I remember what God did and great. No, how does that propel you and actually change the decisions, change the way you walk? Now, as I was meditating upon this truth, I was kind of curious to see. I wonder how God had really come through for me in my past. And I came across this entry, and it was in, I think, 2005. And it was in the June of 2005, June 28th. Okay? And I wrote this entry while I was on the Amtrak train from Philadelphia to Pittsburgh to Michigan. I think I was like a sophomore in college. And it was the summer when I was going to go on a missions trip to Peru. Now, this entry was about my passport because what had happened was after purchasing our plane tickets and literally days before we were supposed to set out, I couldn't find my passport. So usually what you do is you expedite it and you get a replacement passport literally within days now. But the problem was back then was if you want to show your citizenship, you had to give them a proof of your birth certificate or something like that. Problem was I wasn't born in America. So all that I had was a naturalization certificate. To make things worse, my mom didn't know that was important. That was in the trash. So the process that I had to do was I had to get a replacement naturalization certificate, take my vows again, get that, and then show that to the passport office and then get a replacement passport, and my mission trip was three or four days away. So in my mind, I'm not going, right? This is this entry. In my head, I was making plans not to go on this trip because of the passport, making summer plans, planning on taking another class, finding a part-time job. I'm still praying and asking others to pray, thinking that somehow God will find a way for me to go. Then I write this. Yesterday, my parents got a letter saying that I could pick up a replacement citizenship certificate. 
It was out of nowhere. They initially told us it would be a lot later, but I ended up getting it yesterday, which allowed me to get my passport expedited to be sent directly to Michigan on Thursday, the day before we are supposed to leave. So I have to go by faith on this Amtrak, believing that the USPS is going to faithfully deliver my passport to this college dorm. Praise God. <laughs> now, you might be thinking, I know why you're sharing this. It's to illustrate that if you remember God's provision in the past, that should give you the amount of courage and faith to encounter everything, right? Well, yes. You know, remembering that event in my life does help me to remember God's provision. But you know what's stronger? You know what happens now? Every time I book a plane ticket, I make sure I have my passport in my hand. Every time I book a trip, I make sure that the expiry date is about a year ahead to make sure that I will never fall into this predicament again. Yes, I thank God and I praise God, but it also changes me. I can't just simply book tickets anymore. I have this crippling fear that I don't have my passport. I take charge of Joanna's passport because I don't trust her either. I have both passports. I make sure that the expiration date is far away. Remembering the past to change the way you live today. That's what these stones are for. It's not just to remember, just to praise God, but it's to actually change the way you go about doing things. That's why he says, set these stones up so that people will come to know. Brothers and sisters, God wants us more than us just memorializing him. Looking back at the good old days, perhaps even your spiritual good old days or the good old days back at church when I used to really grow spiritually. I remember back then. But let me ask, how does remembering that propel you into the future for more of his grace, more of his faithfulness, more of his love, we see God gives us a purpose. But he not only gives us a purpose, he also gives us something far greater. That's our third point. How God helps us to take this step of faith, he gives us his presence. His presence. His presence gives us comfort and assurance because when you're about to take that step of faith, the most assuring thing to have is the presence of God. And to know that reality, the reality of his presence Embedded within this passage, and the central focus of God's command here is actually the Ark of the Covenant. Look a few verses earlier. Go back to chapter 3, verse 11. This is kind of like the theme. Verse 11, chapter 3. Behold, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. That's a good thesis statement here. That's what's going on. And even afterwards, the Ark of the Covenant, it's central throughout chapters 3 and chapter 4. I counted 20 times it's referenced. And, the, and he references the Ark of the Covenant and the priest carrying the Ark. Look at chapter 4, verse 5. Joshua said to them, Pass on before the Ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan. Take up each of your stone upon his shoulder, and so forth. The Ark of the Covenant that was where the presence of God dwelt among the Israelites. 
earlier in their wilderness journey, they made a temporary temple called the tabernacle, and it was in there where God dwelt. And in the most inner part of that tabernacle, in the holiest of places, was the Ark of the Covenant. In the Ark contained the Ten Commandments, where God met Moses. It was where the high priest entered once a year on the Day of Atonement to receive God's forgiveness. That's where they met God, and it was to be in the center of the camp, center of the Israelites. And God, what he does here in our passage, he ensures that the most prominent thing that they see as they cross the river is what? The ark. Because the priests, they're holding the ark as two million are walking across the river. And every single Israelite, as they're walking across, the first thing that they see is the ark. The last thing that they see going across is the ark. And what does that do? It tells them. It reminds them. I am with you. I've always been with you. When I split the Red Sea, remember that pillar of fire and cloud? I was with you then. Do you remember the manna that came down from heaven? I was with you then. I am with you now. See me. See how close I am. See how close I'm willing to get to you by taking on the form of man in Christ. I'm with you now in word and spirit. I'm with you now through your spouse, through your children, through your sufferings, through your difficulties, through this church, through your community groups. It has never changed A.T. Pearson once asked this. He says, I can't go anywhere without the presence of God. He says, I ask God to go as I am led, to go when I am led, and to go where I am led. It is that which has been for 20 years the one prayer of my life. Far greater than knowing the outcome of the future is God's presence. That's what he gives them. Back when I taught English to these cute kids in Taiwan, some of them were about five or six years old, and a lot of them they didn't even know their ABCs, and I had to teach them English from scratch. Now, the rule in this school was you can't speak Chinese. So I had to start with English to teach them English, and they don't know English. And what we used to do is we would try to not only teach them the language, but also expose them to American culture. And one time we had this Halloween night. We were all supposed to dress up and I hated it. I think I wore glasses, and I said, I'm Harry Potter. <laughs> All the other teachers, though, they were getting into it. They even made a haunted house, this uh, portion in the school called the Haunted Hallway. They'd never seen anything like it, and so we were all going through this haunted hallway. Now, keep in mind, I had the youngest class, five- and six-year-olds, right? And the rule was you can't speak Chinese, but as soon as they saw that haunted hallway, I heard so much Chinese coming out of their mouths. I'm not going in there. What's that? Why would you do this? Why would Americans do this? (laughs) I think they're very impressionable and they're cute and adorable. And as students, they thought, you know, we have to go through this unless I'm going to get a bad grade. So none of them opted out. But what happened was, as soon as the lights got turned off and as soon as we took a step into that haunted hallway, you know what I felt? I felt literally 12 hands grabbing my sleeve my back pocket, my pant leg. At first, I thought it was the the scary monsters coming to scare me, but it was the five-year-olds. 
They all wanted to hold something of me, as if holding my back pant leg is going to do anything. Because I couldn't explain to them. I didn't know the Chinese to say, it's just teachers. I couldn't explain to them what was on the other side because I couldn't speak. But they didn't need any of that. All they needed was to know that their teacher was right there next to them. I know his pant leg is here, so I know he's here. That's all I need. And we walked slowly with these 12 hands. Having God's presence is better than knowing the outcome. And he makes sure that you see his presence day in and day out. I would rather have that. How is the Lord asking you to take a step of faith this morning? Do you know Jesus as your personal Savior? Do you know how much he loves you? And perhaps you might not have figured out everything about Christianity, but take that step of faith. He will never forsake you. Jesus himself, he crossed that river when he became man and he carried the cross for our sake. You see, he knew the dangers. He saw the dangers of the cross. He knew that once he hung on that tree, that the dangers of the wrath of God will fall upon him. It will rush on top of him and that he would, for the first time in eternity, see what it means to feel the fullness of wrath, pain, sorrow, and death. And it's because of that, it's because he crossed that torrent, the torrents of hell in our place, so that we wouldn't have to experience any of that, but rather he carries us into the promised land called heaven. Brothers and sisters, that is called the gospel, where we can be with God for all eternity in the fullness of love, peace, joy, and satisfaction, all that our hearts desire. And you think with me, as Jesus stood on the banks of that river, seeing what lied ahead of him, seeing the cross, seeing the cup of the wrath that he would drink in our place, what do you think enabled him to cross? The purpose. Because he knew that once he died, once he was raised, that as a result, many people would come to know and worship the living God. People after him and people around him. And he held that purpose so that, verse 24, all the peoples of the earth may know that God is mighty and that they may fear the Lord God forever. And so that God will be glorified through the cross and through his death. And because in it, many nations, many generations will come to know God and bow down before him. They will say, thank you for the cross. And when we point to the cross and ask, what does that mean? We can tell them. I have a story for you. And therefore, God exalted him to the highest place to bestow on him the name that is above every name. That shows that not only did God give Jesus purpose, he was present with him in the resurrection, that God didn't ultimately forsake Jesus Christ. Do you see the pattern? Do you see the pattern that God wants for us, not just because it's arbitrary, but because that's the pattern that Jesus himself went through, and he did it having purpose and knowing that he would have the presence of God. So with that, let me ask one more time. How is the Lord asking you to take a step of faith this morning? Is it a step of faith in your spiritual maturity, that addiction, that idol, to believe in faith of letting go of certain things, or faith not knowing a certain outcome, but rather having the presence of God? 
I want to end by sharing this short segment from a children's book. I've been sharing this with our staff and our elders, and I believe this is going to be very fitting for us this year. It's a book called Hearts to Make You Sing by Sally Lloyd-Jones, and I'm going to read it for us. God's presence, as we see in his Holy Spirit, he's called the comforter. Does that make you think of a nice, comfy quilt, all cozy and warm? Oh dear, she writes, in the Bayou Tapestry of 1066, there's a knight on the horse, and the caption reads, Bishop Otto comforts his troops. But Otto is spurring them on, encouraging them, urging them to keep going and not give up. Because comfort in the Bible doesn't mean to make comfy. It means to send help. When is Bishop Otto giving them nice fluffy quilts? No, look, he's prodding them from behind with a stick. Not comfy, but Otto is spurring them on, encouraging them, urging them to keep going and not give up because comfort in the Bible doesn't mean to make comfy. It means to send help. And when we want to give up, when we are afraid, God sends his spirit, the comforter, his presence to make us strong, to give us courage, to lift us up. We have that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you utmost, more than anything, even more than a pastor, even more than a building, even more than finances, that we have your presence with us. Not because we've done anything great, but because of your promise to the church that the gates of hell will not prevail, that your church will stand forever. May we trust in that as we take steps forward of faith. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.